probably got, as you came in this morning, something like this. If you got one of these, wave it at me. You probably did. Okay, most of you did. We'll start to give you these each week. Uh, this will, I think, help you as we cover some ground, not only have some references and, and be able to help you keep up with the sermon, because we have a lot to cover today, but there also are uh, some of my resources that I use as primary resource points for this sermon that I'll put in there week to week. If you want to go a little bit deeper and you want to study, read some books, uh, listen to some sermons, you can go ahead and you can utilize those. But Revelation chapter number two, we are going to cover two churches this morning. So there are seven churches listed here in chapters two and three, and this will be the one week that we will cover two at the same time. And as we move through it, I think it will start to make a little bit of sense as to why we would put these two together. But we have, we have a lot of ground to cover, all right? We got verse 12 to verse 29, which is about 20 more than it should be probably. So uh, keep up with me. You're going to have to engage your brain. There's going to be some study for sure, and you're, you're going to have to work. But I'll do my best to apply it at the same time and make it as engaging as possible. So here we are. I'm not going to read all the text at once, but we're going to break this down into five categories. And this will be helpful for your own study. Uh, each of these letters to the churches have kind of five basic components or a structure that is fivefold. And if you get this fivefold structure, you will be able to apply this to really each of the letters and understand them more in depth rather than it just being these sentences that kind of run together. So we're going to start with the characteristic of the sender. And let's look first in verse 12 and then in verse number 18. Verse 12 says, Unto the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he, Jesus, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. <clears throat> verse 18 Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. So he writes to Pergamos and to Thyatira, cities of which you probably know very little, but think of them this way. Pergamos, inner city, Thyatira, suburbia. That would be the best way to put them. Pergamos was the capital of, <clears throat> um, of Asia. And this was a place that was very loyal to Rome. This was a place where there was lots of education. Uh, this was a large city. They had the second largest library in the ancient world, second only to Alexandria. Uh, this was a place that was very st stereotypical of the Greek and the Romans, where there was this pantheon of gods, a very pluralistic society. There was one uh, set up in particular that there was an altar to Zeus that was on top of the mountain that was massive. And it really was a focal point for a lot of their pagan worship. And this altar to, to Zeus was more than 13,000 square feet. I mean, it was just this huge altar. In this place, uh, there was a church. And they had their work cut out for them to minister <clears throat> in this society. Thyatira was a little bit different. Thyatira is the smallest city of the seven that are mentioned. But it has the most uh, press. The smallest city gets the largest letter. Thyatira was more of a blue-collar place. Thyatira was this place where there were many merchants. There was a lot of manufacturing. We actually meet someone from Thyatira in Acts chapter number 16 when Paul goes to Philippi. And we meet Lydia, the seller of purple, from Thyatira. And that would have been very commonplace. There was a lot of fabrics, a lot of textiles. And you could think of Thyatira as this place that no one would go to if it wasn't the Costco of the day. You would go out of your way to buy things in bulk and then to be able to go home and to use that or repurpose it or sell it in a different fashion. But this was Thyatira. And these two letters get this descriptor of Jesus. And each of the churches gets this. If you remember back in chapter 1, we're introduced to Jesus. John turns and he sees Jesus, who has hair white like wool and eyes like fire and feet like fine brass and in this, this garment and he has this, this golden satchel of sorts. And we meet this Jesus and we get little pieces of this description to each of these churches. Pergamus is told that Jesus has this sharp two-edged sword. You say, what's, what's that sword for? Well, we'll learn in a little bit what it's for. But suffice it to say for now that you don't want a sword fight with Jesus. That's not a good idea. 
Thyatira, we're told that Jesus is this one with eyes flaming like fire and feet like brass. And once again, we'll see the meaning of this as we move through the letter to Thyatira, but basically meaning that Jesus sees to the bottom, not just of what we do, but to our motives. And he can discern that and he can judge accordingly in these feet like brass that he's active and he's on the move. So here is these letters. Here is this Jesus that writes them. But the second portion of the letter, we're told that there's this compliment to the recipients. Verse 13, here's what Pergamus gets complimented on. Here it is. I know thy works, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. That's, that's where you live. You live in Satan's seat. And thou holdest fast my name. You have not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. So here's a compliment. You live in Satan's backyard and you're still holding strong. That's what he's saying. Thumbs up. You're even holding strong after violence has begun to come your way. Antipas, my faithful witness, he was martyred. Antipas, we do not see him in the Bible other than this one uh, little footnote, but church history tells us that he was a city leader there in Pergamos who refused to go along with the pagan debauchery and with the pagan festivities and festivals like everyone else in the city did, and it put a target on his back, so they basically put Antipas in a human crock pot. There was a large bronze kettle that was shaped like a bull, and they put him in it, and they roasted him very, very, very slowly until he died. And he says, in the midst of this, in Satan's backyard, with this going on, you are not denying me. You are not renouncing your faith. You are stepping forward. You are, you are holding true that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that I was, I, was, I was killed for sins, but I was buried, and I rose again, and you have core doctrine, and you're holding true to this. Good job. Thyatira, we're told in verse number 19, and I love this little sentence. I know your works. I know your charity. I know your service, your faith. Your patience, your works, and the last to be more than the first. Now think about this. What if we got an email from heaven today, and it said, Dear Harvest, I know that you have a work ethic. And Harvest, I know that you have faith. And I know that your faith is growing. And you have love as well. You love, and you love well. And you serve and not only do you serve, you have patience, you have endurance, and well done. I'm impressed. And not only that, not that you just had it, past tense, or have it presently, but the last is more than the first. Or that's saying, it's growing. It's becoming better. It's becoming more pronounced. Your faith is growing. Your love is growing. Your endurance is growing. Well done. If, if we got an email from heaven like that, I dare say we'd give ourselves a pat on the back and we would be like, we're the stuff. Like, we're, that's fantastic. If God thinks this of us, that we're getting better at all of these things, that's some pretty important stuff. Faith, pretty important for Christians. Love, pretty important for Christians. Serving, being patient, all of that is essential, right? That's what you want to stock your pantry with. Those are the staples of what it is to be a church, and they're doing it well. So they're complimented, but that quickly moves from the compliment into this criticism. Because inside of these beautiful bodies, these churches, there was a cancer that was being allowed to grow. And this is where I want to spend a little bit of time. Verse 14, read it with me. <clears throat> I have a few things against thee, Pergamus. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. We'll look at this in a minute, but this is referring back to Numbers 22, 23, and 24, where Balaam the false prophet is hired by Balak the king of Moab to basically work against the children of Israel and God's people. It was a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now verse 20, here's Thyatira. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, whether this was her actual name or whether it is, it is metaphor for the Jezebel that lived a thousand years prior, we don't know, it really doesn't matter. Let's just assume it's her real name. 
this woman, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So here's what it is. Smyrna was more of Satan like a roaring lion approaching the front doors of the church and threatening and breathing out fire against them. In these two churches, Satan's more of a serpent that's sliding in the back door and is introducing false doctrine in the midst of the church. And the practical outcome of the false teaching that they were embracing was twofold. Number one, they were eating meat sacrificed to idols. And number two, they were fornicating. Now, more to come on that, but let's break it down. Pergamus is told that you are embracing to some degree, or at least tolerating, the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Thyatira is told you're embracing the teaching of the doctrine of Jezebel. Now, all three of these are synonymous. They all three had the basic same core message, and they ended up rooting themselves or manifesting themselves in the same wrong actions. Balaam was someone who would basically had this wholesale business where you could curry divine favor if you hired Balaam. He was a false prophet, and he would do his sacrifices, or he would do his incantations, and you could hire him for an agreed-upon amount of money to either get favor for yourself or put curses on people you didn't like. And Balak attempted to hire Balaam, and Balaam was actually forbidden by God through a series of events that I won't get into, but he was forbidden by God, and Balaam was smart enough to, to heed that warning and to not put a curse on the children of Israel. But he went to plan B. He said, Balak, I can't do what you want. I can't take your money to put a curse on them. But here's what I would do. I would get the Moabite women to look seductively and to dress seductively and to go approach the Israelite man, men and seduce them. And bring them into bed and teach them part of your pagan worship are sexual acts and to introduce them to this and get them hooked on this. That's what I would do. And Balak did it and it worked like a charm. And thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of men of Israel fell prey to fornicating with, intermarrying with, and, and adopting the false gods of the Moabites and, and trying to incorporate that as part of their worship. And here Jesus says, I want to allude back to that and let you know that something similar is happening. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was very similar. We don't have a lot of this in the Bible, but church history tells us, best we know, that this was from Nicholas, one of the deacons in Acts chapter number 6, who was a good man, who loved the Lord, who served the Lord, but eventually swallowed a pill of heresy. And that heresy was the opposite of legalism. Legalism is, here are God's rules, let me add to the rules and upgrade them. I'm going to take God's clear rules, and I'm going to give you more, and I'm going to improve on the Bible. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was pretty much like the doctrine of Balaam. Hear God's rules, ignore some of them. Let's subtract some of them. Let's edit them out. Let's act like this isn't a big deal. It's not a big deal to go to the pagan parties. It's not a big deal to fornicate. It's not a big deal to do these things. It's fine. You can have Jesus. You can embrace Jesus. You can proclaim that he's the only way, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, that he died for sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again, and that he's the, he's the only God that you should serve. You can do that, and you can go have a bunch of fun as well, and you can participate with the culture and all the debauchery that's going on. And that was what was being introduced. The doctrine of Jezebel was pretty much identical. Love the Lord, but go ahead, have fun. Live and let live. Love is love. Have a time. Do whatever you want. As long as they consent, it's fine. Just, just go ahead. And this was part of what was in the church. This was taking hold on the church, and, and they were beginning, some to embrace it, but at least to tolerate it. Because here's how it works. If there's something that you should reject... But Satan wants you to accept it. There's a bridge always between reject and accept, and that's tolerate. Tolerate will bridge the gap between what you should reject and what you end up accepting. 
And so there were those inside of the church that had begun to just tolerate and put up with and stomach what some other people were saying. Hey, in our Sunday school class, you know, we say that that's not okay. But down the hall in their class, they teach the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And you know what? Every idea is a good idea. You know, there's probably a little truth in what we say and probably a little truth in what they say. And we can both just kind of live together and let, this, and let this mix. And this began to come out in very practical ways. It wasn't just something that was up here. It began to come out in life. One was fornication. Now, fornication is a broad word. And for the record, I should have said this at the beginning of the sermon, but some, some Bible passages and some sermons are PG to PG-13, okay? We gear this service towards those that are junior high or older. If you want to bring your younger kids in, that's always welcome. I have zero problem with that, but they're, you're, they're probably going to get a little bit something different than what they would get on the flannel graph in junior church, okay? So if, if this is going to be an issue and we're headed down the road of pagan idolatry and debauchery and fornication, then if you need to switch that up right now and, and go escort a kid to junior church, feel free. But fair warning, okay? No one will judge you if, if you have to do that right now. Fornication's easy. Anything that does not correspond with the sexual ethic contained in the scriptures. Now, that takes a lot of forms, a lot of different shapes and sizes. That could be adultery when you're cheating on your spouse. That could be pornography. That could be having an open marriage. That could be homosexuality, bisexuality. This, this can take shape in a lot of different ways, but anything sexually that is outside the bounds of what the Scripture clearly says and permits, then that would be considered to be fornication. Then there's this idea of that stuff that's sacrificed to idols. And hang with me because we're almost to practical application. But I want to thread the needle because this can be confusing a little bit in the New Testament. But you will find Paul addressing meat sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians. And it seems as though he gives you permission to do this as long as you don't offend someone else's conscience. Then you come to passages like this and it's like it seems like this is clearly don't do this. And there's multiple things at play. So on one hand, you have a kosher diet. You have those that were Jewish and were coming to faith and were holding on to the diet that they had to live out previously and saying we still have to live that out. And that's made very clear in the scriptures. That's not true. That There is no kosher diet in Christianity that if you want to eat bacon, you can eat bacon. But don't offend each other if you're going to do that. There was a separate issue that was meat sacrificed to idols. That's what's most in view here. And it's difficult for me to explain this because it was so part and parcel of the culture that it wasn't just this separate thing that happened every once in a while, but was really enmeshed into the culture. So my, the best illustration I could give would be our Christmas. Christmas is a Christian holiday where Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus, but at the same time, it is a cultural holiday that even if someone is agnostic or atheist or not a Christian, they oftentimes will participate in to some degree because it's not just the thing the Christians do, it's something that the culture does, right? And there's always a rub, like if, if there's a 10-year-old Jewish boy who's in elementary school, that becomes very difficult for him around Christmas time because everybody, it seems like the whole world is celebrating Christmas and the music is playing and the lights are up and everybody gets presents, but I don't get presents on December the 25th and we have our own separate, you know, Hanukkah and Festival of Lights, but we don't participate. But you could imagine it would be difficult as a young Jewish boy in America to be inside of a Christmas season and to not find a particular allure or want to be a part of it. Does that make sense? The same was true for this culture. That the worship of the pagan gods had become so normal and so enmeshed into the culture that to sit it out, it wasn't just to have a different religion, it was just part of what they did. It was part of the holiday structure. And Christians were being lured back into this to say, come, be a part of our feast where we will sacrifice meat to, to these different idols and to these different false gods, and then we will eat 
and we will drink, we will be gluttons, we will be drunk. There was a lot of debauchery that, that went on with this. There was oftentimes temple prostitution and fornication as acts of worship to these gods. And this was just part of it. And the Christians were being told by some, you can still be a part of that. You can still, you can have Jesus and you can have this too. And there was a church in Pergamos and a church in Thyatira that began to tolerate this and to stomach this and to allow those inside of their own circles to teach this, to live this, and to not clearly take a stand on this. And here's the problem with both Pergamos and Thyatira. The problem is that they're too tolerant. There is a version of tolerance that can be good. But tolerance has gone bad, and they are too passive. That they will not address the issue that needs to be addressed, and they will not cut the cancer out of the body and say, this doesn't work this way. This is not, this is not the way that it should go. They were far too passive. And you need to know that for a church to be effective, they need to be led well, and to be led well you don't need passive leadership. Passive and leading don't go together. Despite some people advocating that you can lead from the back, they don't go together. In a church, it requires pastors most specifically, but also even group leaders and deacons and church members to be vigilant and to say, no, there is free speech in our country, but there are certain things that are censored here. If you want to teach the all's fair, and you can do whatever you want, and there, there is no sexual ethic, and that we can just go along with the culture, and it doesn't really matter. No, that doesn't fly inside of church. That's not how it works. That's not, that's not what the Bible says. It takes leadership, and it takes activity to do that. It takes leadership for a home to be led in the right way. For men to say, I will take my responsibility seriously to lovingly sacrifice and lead my home and to not be a passive leader. What was Adam's problem? Remember the, remember the whole story, the garden, the fruit, Satan, the whole thing? Well, his problem was that he ate the fruit, but his problem before he ate the fruit was that he was passive. Because Eve is tempted, and if you read the scriptures, it tells you very clearly, Adam was there. Adam was by her side with his hands in his pockets and his lips zipped, saying and doing nothing and allowing her to make whatever decision she wanted and just tolerating it, maybe not putting his stamp of approval on it necessarily, but letting it happen without being active. What was Lot's problem? Remember Abraham's nephew who went to Sodom and Gomorrah? And if you read it in Genesis, it's like this dude is he's a piece of work. Read what 2 Peter says about Lot. It says that he was a righteous man, but he vexed his righteous soul because he inserted himself into the middle of a lot of debauchery, and in both seeing and hearing their unrighteous deeds, he vexed his righteous soul. His problem was that he was unwilling to separate from all of the nonsense and all of the filth and all of the mess that was happening around him, and he thought that he could just be a fly on the wall and he would be unaffected or his wife would be unaffected or his children would be unaffected. We won't participate. We will just tolerate, and it doesn't work that way. Leaders have to lead their family actively. Dads, you have to lead your family. If your daughter is dating someone who you know to be a loser right? This scenario exists all the time with Christian dads. She's dating him. I'm pretty sure he's a loser. I think they're sleeping together. What should I do? You should be a dad. You should be active. Well, I am a dad. I mean, I'm worried and I'm, I'm praying a lot, you know, that God would get a hold of their hearts and that he would change it. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty anxious. I'm losing some sleep about it. Have you said anything? Well, no, I mean, I don't want to ruin the relationship. You know, I don't, I don't want it to be awkward. I, I, I don't want to try to come in between them. I mean, what would that do to me and her? Have you done anything? Well, no, I mean, she's 17. She's almost 18. She's going to have to start making some decisions for herself. Poor leadership. Poor leadership. Don't let that dude make the decisions for your daughter. You're the leader. You're the dad, right? Parents, parents. 
This is a nominal idea today. Somehow, and I hope that it's, it's a little less in, in our Western PA culture than it is seemingly in the rest of the country, but parents are completely deferring their responsibilities as parents to the doctor or to the school or to the counselor, and you know your kid best. Nobody on this planet knows your child or loves your child like you do or should. And nobody can parent your child. Do not defer your leadership to somebody else. It's a bad idea. And the problem in these churches were leaders who were passive, who were tolerant, who wouldn't step up to the plate and say, look, this is not okay. I know that they consented. I know that your wife consented. She's fine if I watch pornography. I mean, she knows. The question is not, did they consent? The question is not, does your spouse consent? The question is, does Jesus consent? That's the question. And if Jesus doesn't consent, then as a Christian, it doesn't matter who else consents. It's not okay. It's not right. And I'm ever amazed at both Christians and churches that somehow just can't get this right. And I'm not sure if they lack a Bible and they're just not reading their Bible and they're like, I don't know what it says. And they've replaced the Bible with psychobabble. I'm not sure if they have a Bible but they lack a brain and they just can't read it or study it or apply themselves or understand the context. Or perhaps they have a Bible and they have a brain but they just have no guts. I'm not sure. Maybe it's a mixture of all three. But there comes a time in every church, whether it's Pergamos or whether it's Thyatira or whether it's Harvest or whether it's any church, that you have to say, look, here's what it says. It's black and white. It's plain. And although the culture is okay with it, and although you want to be okay with it, and although they're okay with it, and although they may think that you're off your rocker if you say that that's wrong, this is what it says. Period. And I'm not, so don't, don't mishear me. I'm not saying be belligerent, although the sermon is moderately intense. I'm not saying be belligerent. I'm not saying be hateful. I'm not saying just to go at them and attack them. Not at all. Not at all. There's a difference between admonishing a church family to be a church family and your interaction with the world who doesn't know Jesus. But here's what should not change. The truth is the truth. Be loving. Be gracious. As Colossians would say, let your speech be seasoned with salt. Let it be tasteful. Don't be distasteful. But don't shy away from the truth. Don't act as though everything is okay that our culture wants to press on us is okay. There is a sexual ethic. It's not okay to just party it up like the rest of the world. I know that we just ended, you know, Halloween just happened, right? And I didn't stalk any of your Facebooks. But I'm sure that more of a few of you went to the Halloween parties for your, for, your, uh, for your job or with your friends. And you know what happens at most Halloween parties? Maybe, maybe this wasn't the case for you. But you know what happens at most of them? Half of them are smashed. That's the goal. Let's get real liquored up. And most of them, especially the women, want to dress very seductively. Let's have sexy bunny. Let's have sexy nun. Let's have sexy whatever it is. Now you think about it for a minute. Is that the smartest place to be for a Christian? Well, I'm not participating. I mean, I'm not, I'm not getting hammered. They just wanted me to be their designated driver. Well, I'm, I'm not, you know, going through the seductive stuff and, and trying, to, trying to play that game and trying to hook up with somebody. I'm not doing that. That's, that's just my friends. That, that's what they do. But you're going to insert yourself into the middle of it and just be there as part of it, tolerating it, not a good idea. That's not a good idea. There is, you can take separation from the world too far as a Christian. And, you know, they just invented TikTok. TikTok is something that the world invented, not the church. So we can't use it. Like, you can take that way too far and be dumb with it. But you can also not take it far enough and be a Christian who does actually love Jesus at your core and maybe even have a, a growing faith but you listen to the same stuff as them and you go to the same places as them and your life basically looks the same except for Sunday as them. That's not cool. Jesus is never okay with that. And he comes to this church and he says, I have a problem, I have a problem. 
You're allowing this to come in, and the parties are normative for you, and the fornication is normative for you, and you're just acting like this should be, and that it's not a big deal. And I'm telling you, it's a big deal. Stop. That's what he says. And he gives them an opportunity to respond to this. Here's what he says down in uh, verse number 16 and then 21. He gives this command. Pergamus, verse 16, repent, or else I will come to thee quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Here comes that sword again. I'll put it this way. Repent or the hammer's going to drop. Well, I'm giving you some time. I'm giving you some space. I'm, I'm going to allow you to do this, but if you don't do it, my patience is wearing thin. Verse number 21 I gave her space to repent, speaking of Jezebel, of her fornication, but she did not repent. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and then that commit adultery with her in a great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I'll kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. He alludes back to Jeremiah, and he quotes Jeremiah explicitly, that he searches the heart, and he searches the reins, and he gives according to his works, meaning I with eyes of fire can see the motives. And I know what's happening in your heart, not just in your actions. And I will judge accordingly, not just your actions, but your motives as well. And I will judge this. And here's what he's saying. This is good leadership by Jesus. Church leaders, you may be passive. But as the head of the church, I'm not passive. I will be active. Here is a problem, and I'm going to the problem and through the problem. And this is... Just take this model as good leadership. I'm Jesus. I laid out expectations of how you should live, and you're not living according to those expectations. So I'm going to come. I'm going to tell you, stone cold, you're wrong. This needs to change. I'm going to give you time to change, and I'm going to give you time to think this through and to respond. But if you will not respond, there are consequences with teeth. That is, that's the way you run your business. That's the way you run your family if you're a parent. This is the way you run a church. This is the way that Jesus operates. Here are the expectations. Are they clear? Yeah. Okay. A month goes by. I taught you that, but now I'm going to inspect that. You're not doing it. So let's back up. Let me make it clear again. You're not following the expectations. This is not okay. I won't tolerate it. You have to shape up by such and such a date, or these consequences are going to come your way. That is effective leadership. And Jesus says, here's how it is. I'm not going to be passive. You may tolerate this mess, but I'm not going to tolerate this mess. Here's the truth. And if you do not, if you do not respond, consequences with teeth are coming. The hammer is going to drop. Jezebel, you like your bed so much, I'll put you in a hospital bed. So he says, you, you want to be her little disciple and you want to follow her, you want to be her, her, her child and let her indoctrinate you, punishment is going to come to you too. I'm not playing. Repent, I am long-suffering, I am gracious, I will forgive you, we can make this right, but if you refuse to heed the warning, I'm telling you clearly, it will not be pretty. Here's what he says, there's this little side note to uh, the church in Thyatira, this little kind of parenthetical, verse 24. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put on you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. Here's what he says. Hey, just so you know, if this doesn't apply, just ignore it and keep on keeping on. Okay, I'm not going to burden you any further. I'm not going to make your life any more difficult. If, if you're doing the right thing and you're not tolerating this stuff, then you can set this message to the side. I'm talking to those who need it. That's what he says. Here's the last part, part number five. There's this commitment to the overcomers. Let's swing this pendulum away from repentance and warning and heavy-handedness over to something that's really beautiful. Verse 17. And this is one of the parts that you've got to study a little bit. I'm going to tell you up front. This is the part that throws people for a loop that either A, they throw their hands up and they're like, I can't even understand this. Or B, they just make it say whatever they want it to say. <laughs> and neither of those are okay. This takes a little bit of study and understanding what is he alluding to 
most specifically, oftentimes in the Old Testament, what is he referencing that's already been written about that says this? And then it'll, and then it'll make sense, okay? So here's the promise, and this is beautiful. This is poetic, but this is beautiful. Verse 17, Pergamus, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Verse 26, he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as vessels of a potter shall they be broken into shivers, even as I have received of my Father. And I'll give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. All right, so here's what he says. Pergamus, you have an authentic faith. You keep on keeping on. I'm going to give you hidden manna, and I'm going to give you a white stone with a new name, and nobody else is going to know the name. You say, okay, great. What does that mean? That is not very helpful. We're just recapping what he said. Two things. Thyatira, I, if you overcome, I'm going to give you power over the nations, and he goes on about that. I'm also going to give you the morning star. So let's, let's study this for just a minute. We'll apply it and we'll be done. <clears throat> Hidden manna. Manna fell from heaven for the children of Israel. That's how they were fed. It was divine bread. There was a particular pot of manna that was hidden inside of the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember the Ark of the Covenant, you know there were several things inside of there. One of them was this pot of manna. And Jewish tradition held that this pot of manna would be miraculously preserved and that that is what God would break and he would use to feed his people in heaven one day. It was this idea, it, it symbolized the idea of hidden manna, symbolized that you're with God for eternity and he is taking care of you and he is feeding you and resourcing you and he's making sure that you have everything that you need, not just in this life but in the life to come. So it's, 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 it's a roundabout way of saying eternal life and God's going to take care of us. Then he mentions, I will give a white stone. Now, you can read in your own time some of what people think the white stone means. There's lots of ideas. To tell you the truth, we're not entirely sure, but I'll give you, I'll give you at least a perimeter so you can understand a little bit. A white stone is good news. A white stone has eternal implications. The reason why we're not entirely sure is because white stones were used in multiple scenarios within the culture. They used them for balances to make sure things were just. They used them in trials that a black stone meant guilty, a white stone meant not guilty, and perhaps it's saying that you're not guilty and you've been forgiven of all your sins. What I, what I personally think that it means is in the culture, white stones were oftentimes given as what we would call a ticket. Now, we went from stones, at some point in time we came to paper tickets, and now we don't have paper tickets, we have digital tickets, right? But you would oftentimes be given a very specific white stone and on it perhaps the name of the event or perhaps your own personal name, sometimes the name of the person that was inviting you to it, but it was your ticket of sorts that you could take to the point of entry and you would be allowed into the festival or allowed into the, uh, the wedding reception if you gave them your white stone with something written on it. You could think of the name written on it maybe as a barcode, something that is unique to you that will get you entry and no one else can use it. And what he's, what he's saying is, if you continue on, and think about this, we're going to miss out on all that, on that food and all those parties. We're going to miss out on these holidays that are part of the culture. Listen, you're not missing out on anything. You're going to gain everything. I, I know that that meat may taste good, the filet is real good as they offer it to their, to their idols, but trust me. There's, there's some manna, and I'm going to feed you in heaven, and it's going to be even better. And I know that you may someone, you want to go to the party, and you want to engage in that activity, but listen, there's, there's a super fantastic, awesome forever party, and it's heaven, but it's even better, and if you have to choose between the two, choose heaven. Stick on my team. You're not going to miss out on anything. He comes to Thyatira, and he tells them. What does he say? He says, you're going to rule the nations, and he quotes Psalm chapter number two. And if you don't understand Psalm two, you don't understand what he's saying. It's this passage where the Messiah rules and reigns and all that is sad becomes untrue and all that is evil is done away with. And the metaphor is that there's this rod of iron that meets this clay pot and when iron rods meet clay pots, iron rods win. 
and clay pots shatter into a thousand pieces. And it is this, I am in control and I will, I will be just. I will take care of all of the evil in the world. And you will partake in that. My victory will be your victory. And you will be given the morning star. What's that? Well, the morning star is the star in the morning, right? After the dark night has ended and a new day dawns, those are morning stars. And if you read Revelation, you keep reading, you will find that very explicitly Jesus says that I am the root, I am the offspring of David, and I am the bright and morning star. This is what he's saying. My victory is going to be your victory. You, you think that, they're, that they're, they, they got the upper hand and that they're winning. They're not. My victory is going to be your victory. And you're going to get me. You're hooking up with him and you're hooking up with her and you're trying to get these connections with all these other people. You don't need that. You need me and I will give you me. Have you ever seen one of those surprise videos where the soldier goes off to war and then they come back nine months later or 12 months later and the children or the spouse doesn't know that they just arrived home that day and someone's videoing it and they show up in the gymnasium and they show up at the house and all of a sudden the family realizes I get you, right? And they fall into each other's arms and, and they're smiling and they're crying and they, they have each other because that's what they really want. They didn't want a new car and they didn't want a new wardrobe and they didn't want cash. They wanted each other. He's saying, you're not going to miss out on anything. You're going to have a relationship with me. You're going to have my victory. You're going to have all of your needs provided for. You're going to have heaven. You're going to have eternal security. If you stick on my team and if you do what I say, if you have authentic faith, then that's coming your way. Don't mope. Don't be sad. Don't feel like you're missing out on life and that there's all these things that people are doing and I wish I would have known that. You know what? I'm going to get married as a virgin. Am I really missing out on something if I didn't try this and this and this and this? Do it my way. You won't miss out. That's what he's saying. And how encouraging is that? In a passage that could be interpreted as just law and threat and punishment, you're missing it if that's how you view it. There's some, there's some words there that are clear and pointed, no doubt. But there is hope and encouragement and grace and love and promise in this text. And if you miss that, you miss the point. What did Revelation 1-3 say? Blessed are the people who read these words and heed them. You're missing the blessing if all you see it in this text, or I would dare say the whole Bible. Most people, when they read the Bible, they read it through the filter of law, threat, punishment, or grace, love, and promise. And the proper way for a Christian to read the entire Bible, including this passage, is grace, love, and promise. A merciful Savior who leads well, who's willing to confront sin, who's willing to give space and the opportunity to respond, who's willing to give punishment if that's not responded to, as a good leader would do, who's willing to offer security and promises. Let these words comfort you. I'm done with this. I forget the year that the Golden Gate Bridge was uh, built. Anyone ever been to the Golden Gate Bridge? All right, quite a few of you have. The Golden Gate Bridge was built in two phases, pre-safety net and post-safety net. The bridge construction almost came to a, to a halt because those that were constructing it were so scared that they would fall to their death. And the reason they were scared that they would fall to their death is because 23 men fell to their death. And they had to stop construction entirely on the bridge in a project that was millions and millions and millions of dollars, they spent $100,000 and they built a safety and security net under the bridge. And not only when they built that net did the, did the construction resume, it resumed at a rapid pace compared to what they were going at. And wouldn't you know it, because of that security, not one person fell in the net. The security of knowing that I am cared for and doom will not be my end, gave them the stability that they needed to actually work more efficiently and fervently in the day. And if you miss the end of these letters, you miss it all. 
because Jesus is trying to give his church not promises that everything will be honky-dory and no one will target you or murder you or hate you or speak ill of you. No. But promises that your eternity is secure so that you can move through life more powerfully and swiftly and effectively for his cause, knowing that there is a safety net and there is hidden manna and there is a tree of life and there is, there is ruling and reigning in his victory. He will give himself to me knowing that you know that you know that. So be encouraged and be comforted and be willing to take a stand. Don't be passive. Don't just tolerate nonsense. Be active in your faith. Father, we come to you thanking you for the opportunity to study for a little bit this morning. This is a text that is both a little bit complicated and a little bit heavy. And I pray that we would get the main themes of what you're trying to communicate. I pray that as a church, we would not miss the message of warning, but that we also would not miss the message of comfort. So teach us, and may we be people that live according to your consent, who want to do life your way, not our own. Give us the wisdom and the discernment and the courage to step into life, not on our heels and not in a passive nature, but in an active, faith-forward way. And we ask for this courage in your name. If you're a Christian in the room, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Take this moment and if there is sin that is more or less, I just live like the world and act like the world and party like the world, but claim the name of Jesus. Man, lay that down. That's not fitting. It's just not. If there is sexual sin that is haunting your life right now, which is certainly the case for more than a few in this room, has to be. Understand that you can wear the patience of Jesus thin. Well, no one found out last time. Well, I'm, I'm doing all right. It hasn't ruined my life yet. Mm. You're playing a dangerous game. Take the opportunity to respond to his mercy and say, Jesus, you're right. I'm wrong. This isn't okay. I'm laying it down and I'm repenting and I'm confessing. And I want to live for you. Do it in this moment. If that does not apply to you, then let the message to Thyatira ring true in your heart. If it doesn't apply, set it to the side and keep on keeping on. Thank him for his mercy. Thank him for his grace. Thank him for his security. Thank him for his promises. Because his promises are sure and real. And if you're in the room and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then I encourage you right now where you sit to respond to Jesus. This is the truth. Jesus hates sin, but he loves you. So much so that he died for sin. He hung on a cross and he died for sin and he was buried and he rose again from the dead. And if you will put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus, he will save you from your sin. You say, you don't know what I've done. I know, but he does and he'll forgive you. He'll clean you. You don't know the skeletons in my closet. I know, but he does. He'll forgive you. He will wipe the slate clean and he will give you the promises of heaven. So turn to him. Call out to him. If you never have, maybe pray something like this. Say, Jesus, today I put my faith and trust in you and you alone. I ask you to save me. I ask you to clean me. I ask you to give me hidden manna, as it were. Jesus, my trust is only in you. I believe you died and rose from the dead. It doesn't have to be those words, but if it's something like that, he promises it'll save you. God, one last time we come with hearts of humility and praise that you would love us. Lord, we admit that we're a mess and we thank you that you do not want to leave us a mess. That you want to not only call us out, but call us up. And that you want us to live on a higher plane for you. So thank you for being willing to lead us well, to engage, to give us warnings when we need them. We, we really consider that to be a privilege. And we're grateful for it. In your name we pray. 
Well, we're going to baptize to end our service this morning. Before we do, I do want to introduce you to a few different people. Uh, Brian and Alex are being baptized, and they're going to join the church. Uh, but there's also a few others. Where Jeff and Joyce Bracken, are you in the room? Jeff and Joyce, wave at me if you're in the room. They may have been in the first service. They normally are. I'm, I may have missed that in the first service. Uh, Scott, Tamara, uh, wave right here, and, uh, and Amber. So uh, they're coming as well to join the church. They, they know the Lord. They love the Lord. Driving almost an hour to be here on Sunday. And uh, if you want to welcome them and you want to welcome them into our church family, would you give them a round of applause? Let's take a minute and watch these baptisms, and Pastor Dom's going to dismiss us. Well, we're excited to have Alex and Brian getting baptized today. They've been a part of our church for a number of months now, uh, recently moved to the area, and we're excited to have them be a part of our church family. We're always excited when people take a, the next step. And you may be sitting there this morning and just wrestling with what your next step is. It may be that you need to be saved. We'd love to have that conversation with you. Maybe you need to be in here next week and, and get baptized. We'd love to have that conversation with you. Maybe it's join a group or jump on a team or get involved in generosity, but God's always challenging us to go to higher ground and take that next step. And so we're excited to have them doing that today. Alex, have you received Jesus as your savior? Yes. Fantastic. Then I get to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Brian, I'm going to ask you the same thing that asked your wife. Have you received Jesus as your Savior? Yes. Well, that's wonderful. I get to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Thank you so much for coming out and being a part of our service this morning. Be safe, and you guys have a great day. You're dismissed.